I pray. Um, I pray for y'all frequently, and one of the things that I pray, I had a pastor friend tell me that um, God has, he's seen examples of churches where God led them to a certain pastor, um, and he was a dud, not God, the pastor. And he led them to a dud so he could get them to the place that he needed them to be, and I pray that I'm not the dud. Um, and I'm serious about that. That's that's not just a joke. I'm I'm very serious. I pray that that I am not the dud, and I'm not the one that starts well and then falls apart, but that God continues to to use me. Um, Ezekiel, I, I've told you this before, but I haven't really stressed it to this point. I've told you several things about Ezekiel, but one of the things that's about him that I think is very important to his character and is important in this book is the fact that he comes from a priestly lineage. In that day, if you're a Levite, you're called to the priesthood. It's, it's not like today where you can kind of pick and choose and go into whatever field you want to, and as long as you can make the grades or as long as you can get the certifications or as long as you can do the work, then you end up becoming that thing. It would often go by families. And so if your dad was a carpenter, then you started learning carpentry. Uh, if your dad was a farmer, then you started farming. If your dad was a Levite, if you're a Levite, um, there weren't very many vocational options for you. You were going to be a priest in some way. And Ezekiel was in that lineage. Um, in fact, it's likely, though we don't really know this for sure, that Ezekiel was in the lineage um, that not only were Levites in general, priests all over the land, but in particular, the clans that would be in charge of the temple in Jerusalem. And so you have here a guy that is just about ready to become a priest when God suddenly changes everything. Scholars think that he was just about that age, just about to the age of 30, where he was going to become a priest. Slightly under, maybe a couple of years younger than that. Um, when, the earth, when the first exile occurred, and Ezekiel was taken along with several others out of Jerusalem, about 11 years later, the city would be destroyed, but he, he would be taken in an earlier round. And it's at that point that God seems to call him out of the priestly and into the prophetic. So I want you to imagine for a moment. Imagine, if you will, a young man who grows up in Tuscaloosa County. He, he grows up playing peewee football, plays for the middle school, goes to high school, he plays for the high school. He's on track, and you know what he's on track for. He's on track to go to Alabama and play football there. Suddenly, just before he gets that acceptance letter, family ups and moves across the country and he's no longer going to Alabama to 
play football. I know Malcolm, you are shedding tears. I see. I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hurt you. Um, if that's you in that kind of a boat, and take the Alabama out of it, just put in whatever whatever you want. Take the football out of it if you like, and put in whatever you want. If that's you, and you have been called out of a certain life, and you've been practically preparing your whole life for that, and then suddenly you find out that that's not going to happen. Perhaps you have been trying to find a way to be an astronaut, and then you find out that you can't pass the eye exam to become a pilot in order to become an astronaut. Think about, think about the type of person who has spent years and years and years preparing but cannot pass the bar become a lawyer or who just before he goes to take the bar something dramatic happens and now being a lawyer is off the table it's it's somewhat of a shock in fact it's like a whiplash effect in a way it changes everything but it doesn't change your love for what you were involved in first And what it doesn't change is that heart that you've developed over years and years and years for the thing that was going to be, but never was. Part of what drives Ezekiel as a prophet is a love for the temple setup as a whole. Not just the temple building, but the rituals and the sacrifices. And, and not just because those things are great to do, I can't imagine how slaughtering animals and performing rituals every single day would be that much fun to do. But it's the type of thing that gets into you. And you see the beautiful imagery of this, this animal representing the sin of a person being absolved by God. When you see the imagery of the fragrant incense rising up in the tabernacle or in the temple and seeing that like prayers rising before God, swelling, smelling the sweet aroma and getting the picture of God taking in the prayers and then pleasing Him. When you see the imagery of the pomegranates that are worked into the, the curtains and, and into the bronze work and the silver work and the gold work throughout the temple. When you though you may not ever see it unless you're the high priest, when you think about the two cherub, the two cherubim with wings outstretched, I imagine something along the lines of this touching each other on the Ark of the Covenant. When you see all of this imagery and see all of these, these motifs and, and get to know the reasons why we're doing all of these different things, there is growing within Ezekiel day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, a love and appreciation for the things of God. And I can only imagine how he feels when God calls him to be a prophet, to be a watchman looking out over the people of Israel. And I can't imagine just how bad it would be when Ezekiel penned some words. Then the glory of the Lord went out 
from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. Maybe you missed the significance of what he's saying because of the imagery. But at this point in in the chapter, Ezekiel is seeing a vision of these cherubim, these angels, over and against the temple. And he watches as the glory of God gets out of the temple boundaries, comes out of the gate of the temple, and removes himself completely from that place. Think of this as a priest. That's got to be devastating. To see the God that you love and worship and want to honor and obey and follow leave the place that He is supposed to be. The place among Israel to remove His glory. When the temple was built by Solomon, Solomon prayed these prayers and God responds, I've heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. This was supposed to be the place where God endures among his people. And now he's up and left. Why would God leave his temple? Why would God leave the place where he was supposed to be? That doesn't doesn't make sense. What would drive him out? This evening, I want us to ask the question, why would God leave his temple? And by extension, what could cause God to leave his church today? Ezekiel chapter 8. I want to focus you on a few verses this evening. We're going to be in a couple of different chapters, so um, if you're if you're there, um, Carrie, on that, there's a white remote back, back there for that projector. Would you turn it on? Please. Thank you. That projector, I forgot to turn that one on. And so I'm looking back there, and I can't see it. That's why I'm turning sideways. But Ezekiel chapter 8. Listen to what God says. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. Now, what what you might have missed, if you read the first few verses of chapter 8, you would see that this is a vision. That Ezekiel was in among the exiles. In fact, the elders of Israel that have been exiled are sitting with Ezekiel. And all of a sudden, God's messenger comes and grabs him by his hair and pulls him into Jerusalem, like picks him up and pulls him all the way to Jerusalem. 
It's not, not exactly the preferred method of travel, but, but when God's moving you, sometimes that's, you just end up going however he takes you. And he sees that he's in Jerusalem at the temple. He said to me, son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north and behold, north of the altar gate, in the entrance, was this image of jealousy. Verse 6, and he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here? So what has happened is they have set up a image, a false idol at the gate, one of the gates of the temple. This is God's house. I don't think false idols belong in God's house, do you? Do you see what they're doing here, God says? The great abominations that are the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary, but you will, still, you will see still greater abominations. So they set up this image in the, the, in the temple, in the temple courtyard at the gate. God says, that's not all. Wait till you see more. Verse 7. And he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall. And behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and I saw. And there, engraved on the wall all around, was every kind of form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jaazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark? Each in his room of pictures. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, you will see still greater abominations that they commit. So now uh, he comes up to the wall and there's a hole in the wall and God tells him, dig into that hole. He starts digging into that hole and he realizes this is an entrance and he walks in and in this darkened room, there's all these images all over the walls and all of these, all of these elders of Israel are lighting incense and offering worship to these images. What in the world are they doing? It gets worse. Verse 14. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat a woman weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz was a goddess of one of the foreign lands that the Israelites had adopted. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O Solomon? You will still see greater abominations than these. Now, just outside, you got a woman. Crying for a goddess. 
weeping over a goddess. The reason being because of their destruction, the natural assumption is that their gods got destroyed too. And then verse 16. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, there were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence? And provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. What do all these things show us? Shows us what's taking God away from the temple. Did you catch it? The result of all these things, he tells us in chapter 9, verse 3. And the glory of the Lord of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. Almost as if he's hearkening back. Almost as if he's, he's taking you back and drawing an image from the recesses of your mind, bringing it back out. He says something that sounds familiar. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. What ends up happening is he gets this man to stand at the threshold. He gives him instructions and this man goes out and creates desolation. While he's standing at the door in the gate that leads into the temple. When I read that, I, I, I couldn't help but think of Genesis chapter 3. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It's almost as if God is standing guard at his temple that no one else may enter. God is shutting the doors, closing it down. Why? Because they're worshiping false gods. You say, well, we, we don't have that problem. We don't worship false gods. I mean, nobody here cries for Tammuz. Nobody here bows to the sun. We don't have our images. We don't, we don't do those kinds of things. I mean, some people might do those kinds of things, but we don't. I mean, we only worship God. Do we? 
heard sometime I was in a church, someone stood up and said, the church was voting on getting new hymnals. And they stood up and said, in effect, that really, if we really wanted to worship, we needed to move from just the hymnals to screens. Can I tell you something? I'm not against screens. I use screens. I think screens are wonderful. It's so helpful to be able to put a verse on a screen when the clicker works. It's so helpful to be able to have the words to a hymn on a screen, especially a hymn that's not in the hymn book, especially a hymn that you haven't sung for a long time. It's so wonderful to be able to see the words and read them and sing along. That's a great thing. But if you need a screen to worship, you're not worshiping God. Now, hang on. Because some people will argue that if it ain't in the hymnal, it ain't worship. Do you know how many different hymnals we've had uh, through the centuries? There are hymnals that you can't even pronounce the names of them. Because they're in Latin, or they're in French, or they're in German, or they're in all kinds of other languages. There are some hymnals that if you looked at, you wouldn't be able to read them. Not because of the difference of language, but because the music is completely different. This modern notation we have of music, that didn't just magically appear. There are some old hymnals that I've seen, and the music is just... Like, I can't follow it. I can read music today. I can't read that music because it's so different. If you are relying on a hymn book to be able to worship God, can I tell you something? It's getting in the way. If you have to have a hymnal to worship, you're not worshiping God. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not the worship style. Maybe you could care less whether, whether we sing songs that were written last week or a millennia ago or where, whenever. It doesn't matter. You might think, you know what? It's all the same to me. It doesn't matter to me. There are some churches today that are worshiping the false god of church growth. I'd love to see us grow, but I don't want to see us grow and compromise the gospel. There are some churches that you walk into and it's all about getting somebody else in the door, getting somebody else on the roll. It's all about what can we do? How can we be sensitive to other people? And they've left the gospel a long time ago. Can I tell you something? That's worshiping a false god. There are some churches that refuse to do anything to reach their community. Well, this is the way we've always done it and this is the way we're always going to do it. Can I tell you something? That's worshiping a false god. And by the way, traditions make a terrible God. Um, you may have heard the story, maybe I've told you before, of the, 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 the bulletin. The guy making the bulletin was cutting off an inch off the bulletin, and he said, this is crazy. Why are we doing this? Why am I, I'm having to cut an inch off the bulletin every single week. This is nuts. I, so he decided to ask around tried to find out who the last person that did the bulletin was and asked them, and I don't know. 
You know, before me, there was so-and-so who did them, and he went to that person. Finally, uh, going back a couple of generations of bulletin makers, he finally found this little frail old woman, and he, he went there, and he was talking to her, and just said, by the way, can you tell me why we cut an inch off the bulletins? And she laughed. She said, y'all still do that? Yes, ma'am. Do you know why we, what's, what the reason was that we do it? And she said, well, when I was doing the bulletins, they were too big to fit in my Bible. So I cut off an inch so they would fit better. When we put something else in the place of primacy other than God himself, we are worshiping false gods. And as silly as it may be, the fact of the matter is that when we put something else in the place where God belongs, God is not welcome here anymore. Because we value something else more. If we'd rather have this or that or the other thing, have God, then, then there's no point in God even showing up. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what you do. Men, y'all do this. Tell your wife that she's the second best and watch what happens. Doesn't work. Right? I had a guy told me, he, he didn't even say that. He said, he said, now if I went to my wife, this was an older missionary Baptist preacher, you know, old white missionary Baptist preacher. So, you know, he would just, it didn't matter. He would say anything. Um, and he'd walk up, he, he said, if I walked up to my wife and I said, honey, you're number one. I got number two over here and I got number three. She'd, she'd tell him to go to number two or number three, but she's not number one anymore. It doesn't work when there's more than one, is there? It, does, it doesn't work that way. Y'all, when we put something else in the place of God, or even have something else next to God, God says, uh-uh, no. That command, you shall have no other gods before me, is not just that I have to be the first God, but you can have as many as you want thereafter. Before me literally means in my face. Don't bring another God in my face. Don't even bring them near me. Me and me alone. These guys were breaking it in such terrible fashion. But we often do it subtly. We put something else that's just more important. Something else that we just got to have right. And sometimes that means we, we shaft the gospel. We, we give God a second place. Or we try to make the throne big enough for two. It ain't. God's throne's only big enough for one. And he's already been sitting in it long enough that it's tailored to his own seat. So nobody else can fit in it. Y'all ever see that? If you sit in the same seat for a while, it kind of it molds to your shape. 
The fact is that when we try to put God in another place, try to put something in God's place, God's not welcome anymore. And that's why he left. That's why he left his temple. We're going to skip past Ezekiel's response. The, uh, God, God um, Ezekiel prays for mercy as, as this angel is going out, slaughtering people, bringing the judgment of sin upon them. And um, Ezekiel begs for mercy, but God says, no. No, their, their sin is coming upon their heads. But then, we go back to the vision of the cherubim. Then I looked and behold on the expanse that was over their heads in the cherubim there appeared above them something like a sapphire, an appearance like a throne. Ezekiel continues the scene in verse 3. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house, that being the house of God, that being the temple. Interesting, he doesn't call it the house of God anymore. It's not the house of the Lord, it's just the house. Nothing special about the house anymore. When the man went in and a cloud filled the inner court and the glory of the Lord went up from the cherubim to cherub to the threshold of the house and the house was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord and the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. Normally when this kind of scene happens, God has come down upon the temple in order to be with his people, in order to make expiation for their sins, in order to be worshipped and praised and adored by the nation of Israel. This time though, when God's glory shows up in this kind of way, he's doing it for something completely different. He's not doing it to come to be with Israel. He's doing it to leave. Israel had seen the glory of the Lord, but this time the glory of the Lord has packed his bags and is moving on. The idolatry of Israel has become too great for God to remain when we worship false gods, we rob God of the worship that is only due Him. He will not stand by. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah 48, 11. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God will not let his glory be passed on to someone else. God leaves. I told you Ezekiel is the priestly prophet. Can you imagine his heart as he's writing all this? As he's watching the temple be deserted? As he's watching the abominations, as he's watching God bring judgment for the faithlessness of his people, he must have prayed long hours for God to restore his temple. He must have begged God to return to his meeting house with Israel. And to remain there for all generations. 
And then some things happen in the interim. God passes judgment. Jerusalem is destroyed. God takes his vengeance. And once the sin is dealt with, he begins to restore his people. Now you can imagine for a priestly prophet, there's only one thing that will really symbolize restoration. And that's a restoration of the temple. Everything else is great. Everything else is wonderful. Everything else is so good. But if we can just get that place to meet with God back. If you read in Ezekiel, we've been preaching 33 through 39. 40 through 48 are all about the restoration of the temple. We've already preached a little bit of it. We've preached how the water begins to flow from underneath the temple. And it flows out the gate and it flows down the valleys and into, eventually, into the Dead Sea. And it turns the Dead Sea so fresh that things thrive in it. The saltiest sea in the world where virtually no life can survive becomes this freshwater oasis where things thrive. This is where that begins. In chapter 43, then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, that same gate where the people were standing with their backs to the temple praising the sun, praising the sun this way, right to the east. And behold, can I read in between the lines here for a minute? I don't think Ezekiel saying, behold. I think Ezekiel saying, hey, look, look. The glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. Look, do you see it? Do you see it? He's coming. He's coming. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. Do you see it? And the vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city. It was just like that. Except this time. Except this time, instead of going away, he's coming toward. This time, instead of turning his back and getting out of the temple, he's coming with his face shining toward the temple. He's coming back. Do you see him? Do you see the radiance of his glory lighting up the earth around him? Do you see him? Just like the vision I had seen by the Kabar Canal, and I fell on my face because if you see God coming, that's the only thing you can do. Verse 4, And the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord Filled the temple. Amen. God is back, baby. Y'all don't get it. Y'all, y'all don't get it. Y'all, a couple of y'all are kind of smiling, but y'all don't get it. 
what God, what brought God back? What is it that brought God back into his house? He didn't forget his keys. He went back just to grab something real quick. God was coming back to stay. You know what really happened? God dealt with their sin. When we put false gods ahead of the true God and worship images rather than the image maker, God will not be in our midst, church. You need to know that. But when we humble ourselves before God, we cast out the images, break down the idols that vie for our attention and allegiance, then God will bring down his glory upon us. If we want to be a church where God's presence is, if we want to be a church that honors Him, if we want to be a church that does what we are supposed to do, we cannot let anything else get in the way of Him. Father, I thank you for the heart of a prophet and priest. Gave me a new appreciation for the temple. Who helped me see that this is the place where you live and this is the place where we come to worship you. And we recognize that in, in the New Testament terms, the church isn't exactly like the temple. The temple's a building. The church is people. But God, we recognize that there is a parallel. And that is that when we worship false gods, you will not be in our midst. Not to bless. Not to bring favor. Not to move us forward and to do the work that you want us to do. God, you would be in our midst to punish, to exercise wrath on sin, to judge, and rightfully so. God, we also recognize when we put you the one true God, and we cast away all the idols. We get rid of all the other stuff. We don't look for something else to make it. We don't try to substitute anything for you. God, when, when we honor you, and you alone, not only will you hang out with us, God, you'll empower us. You will do amazing wonders in us and through us. God, we recognize as a church we are totally dependent on you and I pray that just as the temple saw your glory return in Ezekiel's vision, I pray that we would see your glory fall from heaven upon this church, that we would be the people of God empowered and emboldened by your Holy Spirit 
to proclaim your son to our neighbors and our friends, our co-workers, to those who are around us, those who live with us, those whom we love, those whom we are near. God, I pray, God, please send your glory on us that we may show your goodness, that we may bring you praise. Here we are, Lord. Send us and do the work in us that all may know you are God. In Christ's name, my friend.